0: If you're here for the first time, my name is Mark, and it's my <coughs> privilege to serve as one of the elders that's on staff here, and I get to bring the message this morning. If you were here maybe for the first time for Easter last Sunday or joining us online, uh, welcome back. I want to give you a little update on where we are in our um, sort of the, the plan for the, the messages, the sermons that, that, that happen here. So uh, here's a little preaching update. The way preaching works here... Hang on a second. Stephen, I need to cough. (coughs) All right, good. A little too much pollen around. Um, So most Sundays, we just work our way through books of the Bible. And so we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We started that last fall, and that's actually going to take us all the way through the summer. But occasionally the elders recognize that there are topics that we need to address or want to address. And um, when we drop into those, we have sort of a, a an occasional series that we call Life Along the Way, things that come up along the way as we're following Christ. These are occasional messages to help us grow as disciples. And so those messages are a little different. We may be pulling from different parts of the Bible to help us understand a particular issue, but always the authority is found in God's Word. And so for the three weeks before Easter, we did a a short series on generosity. And now today and next Sunday, we're doing a a, a life along the way series on what we call the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so I'll be explaining what that's all about uh, shortly. And then just to give you a heads up of where things are going after that, on April 30th, we'll resume our uh, series in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 9. I want to encourage you uh, sometime between now and then, if you can just read through the Gospel of Mark, that'll help get you oriented to where we are, kind of right in the the midpoint of the storyline of the book in chapter 9. And then also just an exciting uh, uh, mention, May 7th, one of our uh, dear friends, a wonderful ministry partner from the Dominican Republic, Alvaro Rodriguez, he will be here with us. And he'll be speaking that day. So that's something to look forward to. So this morning, the question is: what is baptism? And uh, we have two scripture readings, and Eva Schaff is going to read those for us. So thanks, Eva. Matthew 28,
1: 19 through 20. God therefore, or go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I have you always to the end of the ages. Romans 6, 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Were we buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was risen from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this.
0: Let's pray. Thanks, Eva. Oh, God, our Father, as we are assembled in the presence of the Holy Spirit on this Lord's Day, it's possible for eternal things to take place right now. It's also possible for not much to happen. And we confess our dependence upon you our need for you, our hunger and thirst for you, and our great confidence in you. O oh, great God, would you make yourself known to us? Would you teach us your ways that we might walk in your truth for the glory of your name in this city and to the ends of the earth? We pray. Amen. So the gospel is good news. It's the good news that God saves us by grace, not by living a good life. And then he strengthens us for the journey with him, this newness of life, this new walk that we have. And one of the ways that he strengthens us is through these sacred rituals that we call baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what is baptism? Who do we baptize? Why do we baptize? How do How does baptism matter for people who've already been baptized? Maybe baptized many years ago. I want to just read again Romans 6, 3 that was just read for us. I want you to think about this with me if you would. Do you not know, church, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now here's the situation, this letter that we call Romans. The writer is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Rome. He's never been there. He knows some of the people through travels, but he's never been to this church, and yet he knows something about them, and he knows something about us because he knows something that's true for all baptized followers of Christ. He knows that their baptism has ongoing significance for their lives together in Christ. So members of Redeeming Grace Church, do you know that your baptism still matters? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, well, there's significance right in the middle of the Christian life. Do Do you know that about your baptism? Maybe you're here as a guest. Maybe you're interested in learning more about Christianity. Do you know what baptism is all about? Maybe you are a professing Christian that's never been baptized. Do you know what baptism is all about? Today we want to ask ourselves, what do we know about baptism? And then we want to look to God's holy word to find answers. Today and next Sunday, we will look at what we call these two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. Why are we doing this? Well, The initial sort of presenting issue was a few weeks ago, or maybe it was a little more than that, we started talking about moving away from these single-serve Lord's Supper communion things that are affectionately called the rip and dips that we've been using since COVID. We didn't always receive the Lord's Supper this way, but COVID happened and we had to find a new way to not pass trays and stuff like that. And and so in the near future, we're going to shift the way we do this back to something uh, uh, a, a different A different system and and so we thought, well, maybe this is a good time to talk about what the lord's Supper is, how it functions, and who should be receiving the lord's Supper at a recent member meeting uh, a, a member asked a great question about whether people need to be baptized before receiving the lord's Supper. Kids growing up in church, parents and kids often have the question, Is it okay for kids to take the lord's Supper?' without being (coughs) baptized. It's a weekly question that comes up in families. And it's been a while since we've taught on these things. And these are basic and important things. So this morning's message, we're simply seeking to look into Scripture to answer this simple question, what is baptism? Now, I want to point you to a resource that we've put together that can help with this. It's called The Sacraments, Frequently Asked Questions for Parents and Children. It's available at the Welcome Center. It's available on our website. It'll be linked to in the follow-up email. And it addresses these questions. And, and it, you don't actually need to be a parent or a child to benefit from the document. If you have questions about baptism in the Lord's Supper, we've put together a, a summary to, to help us understand these things. And uh, so I want to encourage you to uh, check that out. So today, uh, <clears throat> four questions. What's a sacrament? What's baptism? What does baptism signify? What does it mean? And then who should be baptized? That's where we're going today. And then next week, we'll look at the Lord's Supper and try to kind of put these two together and compare and contrast. What do they have in in, in similarity and and what's different about, about them? So question number one, what is a sacrament? The answer that we give in this little document I just mentioned is this. A sacrament is a blessing from Christ which is a sign and a seal given to believers in order to teach and assure us of our salvation. Now, that language isn't original with us. For centuries, the church has taught that these sacraments are signs and seals given by God, and they're intended to both instruct us, but also to be experienced by us in a way that's encouraging and strengthening to us. Where did these come from? Jesus initiated these two sacraments for his people, baptism and the Lord's Supper, or sometimes called communion. These two sacraments, they're pictures of the gospel. Every time you see a baptism, every time you experience the Lord's Supper, it's an actual picture of the good news and the new life that we have in Christ. And it's intended not to just remind you of some fact, but to be experienced by you as a believer, to comfort you, assure you, and strengthen you as you make your way to heaven. Now, Abraham, the the patriarch back in the book of Genesis, he's a great example, uh, and and he he helps us understand this language of sign, (coughs) excuse me, and seal. Back in Genesis 15, if you go back and read Abraham's story, you'll find that there in chapter 12 and 15, God meets with him and calls him to to, to follow God. And Abraham does. Abraham trusts God. He believes God and it is counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believes God and trusts him. And so God considers him through faith to be in right standing with him. That's chapter 15. Then in chapter 17, God tells Abraham that he should be circumcised. And this is the sign of the covenant with him. So I want you to notice the order. He believes God, it's counted him as righteousness, and then he receives this sign, the sign of circumcision. Now Paul, the writer, writing to the Roman church, we were looking at chapter 6 a moment ago, but just a little earlier in chapter 4, he brings this up. And he says in chapter 4 verse 11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul's mentioning the same thing to them. He had faith and then he received this sign of circumcision and this seal of his new right standing with God. What does a sign do? You drive in somewhere, you look to a sign to point you in the right direction. The sign isn't the destination, the sign directs you to something else. So the sign points to Abraham's new standing with God and this language of seal. What's a seal? Well, a seal is like you might think of a seal that you put on a book. A seal is an assurance of his relationship with God was thinking about this this week and even yesterday as I was in the auditorium as Stephanie and Samuel well were married here and part of the ceremony was this exchange of rings. I have this ring on my finger that I've been wearing for almost 41 years. This ring that I wear, this wedding ring, it's a sign of the covenant that Leslie and I made on May 30th, 1982. It signifies this ring is not our marriage, but it signifies that we're married. It points to something else. It points to our union. And it's not just a sign. It's also a seal. Because this ring, I didn't take it myself. I didn't put it on myself. During the ceremony, the pastor said, do you have... Leslie, do you have something for Margaret? She says, yes, I have this ring. And so she gave me this ring, and she put it on my finger, and it's a seal to assure me that she wants to be married to me. And I'm still thrilled by that, almost 41 years later. These sacraments are signs that point to the reality that God has saved us in Christ and made this new covenant with us, and they're seals that assure us that he wants us. He wants to be in an eternal covenant relationship with you. Every time you see or experience the sacraments, they're intended to point you in that direction and assure you of those wonderful things. Baptism and the Lord's Supper don't save you. You are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. But they do point you to the salvation that you've received in Christ, and they do assure you that you belong to God, and He wants to be in a covenant relationship with you. So that's what sacraments are all about. They are signs and seals, that teach us and assure us of our salvation. Okay, now let's let's narrow down from there. Let's think about baptism. Ava read Matthew 28, 19, 20. Let me read it again for you. Jesus says, this is sort of his parting exhortation to his his disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to think about what he's saying here, especially if this is familiar language. Slow down and hear this again. Go and make disciples of who? All nations. Now, when Jesus says this, he's not just sort of making this up as he goes. He's fulfilling Old Testament promises that started way back with Abraham, and, 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 and went to Israel because God's plan has always been to make his saving power known among all nations. God's intention for all people is that they might find their joy in knowing and serving and loving and worshiping him. This is the language of Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you, O God. What what peoples? Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So Jesus comes making this new covenant and it comes with an initial sign. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, go everywhere and preach the gospel to them, make disciples by telling them this good news, and then when they repent and believe, baptize them, and then teach them how to walk with me, teach them how to obey me, teach them how to live under my lordship. Think about what he's saying here. He doesn't say, go make disciples of all nations and circumcise them. Might have expected him to say that, but he gives a different sign. He doesn't say, go make disciples of all nations and give them the Lord's Supper. That'll come in the teach them to obey part. No, he gives them this sign of initiation, and a few weeks later, they get to do this. Just a few weeks after Jesus ascends, God pours out his Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The disciples are filled with the Spirit, and this revival begins in Jerusalem, and Peter rises and preaches this sermon about Jesus. And at the end of the sermon, the people are convicted of their sins and they ask for some advice. They say, What, what should we do? And Peter says this: Acts 2:38: repent and be baptized. You'd been listening to Jesus, right? He was paying attention. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Follow the order. Repent. And be baptized. What what is baptism? Baptism is the sacrament which uniquely points to initiation into the Christian life. Baptism has a specific function. People are baptized once, not repeatedly. Unlike the Lord's Supper that we receive repeatedly. We'll talk more about that next week baptism is the sign of coming into right relationship with God through repentance and faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. So there's an order to the sacraments. And so for me, when I was a teenager and I began to hear this good news of Jesus Christ, I repented of my sins and I came to faith and I was going to this little tiny church plant that was meeting on Sunday evenings in a community college auditorium or classroom and they didn't have their own baptistry or way to baptize people. And so I told them I'd come to faith and they were talking with me. And so one Saturday afternoon, my parents and sisters and some friends, we all trooped off to this church in the area that they, that they were able to, 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 to sort of borrow. And they had a baptistry. And I remember going under that water and coming back out. It was a sign of that new life that God had given me in Christ. Now, it's this Sacred ritual, it's this solemn ceremony that Jesus gives us. But what does it mean? What, does, what is this picturing? So let's ask the third question What does baptism signify? And fundamentally, most importantly, it signifies union with Christ. And what does that mean? Okay, so let's go back to Romans 6 if the gospel is the good news that we're saved by grace and not by living a good life, well, then that means that all the sin that we were involved in before got grace. So verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In, in Romans 6, Paul's just spent five chapters explaining how the gospel results in being justified by grace through faith and having Peace with God. And so then the question arises, well, okay, if sinning brought grace, why not just keep sinning so we can get more grace? And the answer that he gives is in verse 2. Look what he says there. He says, by no means. That's really strong language. Don't do that. Uh Uh-uh. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So here's a fact. If you're a Christian, you died to sin you know that? Do you know that you died to sin? Now, what does that mean? Because clearly in the argument here, this is a key to living the Christian life. In chapter six, he's shifting from how to come into a right relationship with God to how to walk with God. So one key for living the Christian life is to know what it means to be dead to sin. And so he says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he does something really surprising. You know what he does? He says, hey, church, I want to take you somewhere. I want to take you back to your baptism. Do you remember when you got baptized? Do you remember when you went down in that water? Don't worry, there's no water in here. I'm not kidding. It's okay. He says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So can you see what he's doing? These people have been Christians for a while. He's talking to them about how to live the Christian life. And he's saying your baptism has ongoing significance for your life with Christ today. And so he says you were baptized into his death. What does that mean? Well, we're back to Good Friday. In fact, it's appropriate that our baptistry is right below the cross because to be baptized first means to be baptized into his death. At the cross, Jesus died for sin and sinners. He died to sin on behalf of sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God, this great exchange. And so he moves on then in verse four to say, brothers and sisters, don't you know that you've been united with Christ in his death? So pause. That's what this baptism signifies. When you go into that water and you go underneath that water, this is why immersion is such a helpful picture. When you go under that water, you're, you are following Christ into that grave, into that tomb. The good news is you don't stay under that water for three days like Jesus did in the tomb. And Jesus, the good news is <coughs> he didn't stay there either. Jesus, you, you may think this water looks like a bath and there is a sense, we'll come to this in a minute, that it's cleansing, but it's also a tomb. There's a funeral that's taking place here. And so when you go under that water, you're being united with Christ in his death. The good news is, and this is what I love about verse four, he says, we were buried with him, therefore by baptism into death. So Christian, do you know that about yourself? You were buried with him by baptism into death. What happens next? In order that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. The story doesn't end with going under the water. The story ends when you come back out. So what does all this mean? What does it mean to be dead to sin? It doesn't mean that as Christians we'll never sin again. It doesn't mean that. That's why we pray prayers of confession, right? It doesn't mean that as Christians we never experience temptations, That we don't still have these wayward, disordered desires inside of us to disobey God and go our own way. It doesn't mean what somebody told me as a young Christian. He said, Look, for you to be dead to sin, it's like propping up a corpse on a street, and that corpse is never going to be tempted by greed or lust or drunkenness or covetousness or anything else. That's not what it means. Because as Christians, we still experience those things. And Paul's going to write about these things. Do you know what it means? To be dead to sin, he explains it in verse 7. One who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Brothers and sisters, do you know that in Christ, through your baptism, dead to sin, you have had the enslaving, ruling power of sin decisively and eternally broken by Jesus Christ? Isn't that good news? We were born again to the living hope that we heard about in last week's message. And when we were united with Christ in his death and then are united with him in this newness of life, our relationships change. Our relationship with sin changes so that sin no longer rules you. You're still in the presence of sin as long as we're in this life and in this body. But those days are numbered. And in a new creation, we will be free even from sin's presence. But right now, brothers and sisters, sin's ruling power over you is broken. You have a new ruler. You're under the reign of grace. And Jesus Christ is your Lord. And so we must know this. Do you not know that we were united with Christ In his death, we are dead to sin. Do you not know that we have risen to walk in newness of life with him? This makes such a difference in the Christian life. Do you know this? Do you remember this? Do you have strategies to remind yourself of this? Let this sermon be a reminder and bring this into your week. This will help you when you're tempted. Just an everyday example. I'm minding my own business, reading ESPN. on the the web and I come across at the end of the article, this sensual image, provocative image of a woman. It's clickbait. Here's where union with Christ makes all the difference. Instead of lingering there or clicking there, I can say, hey, I have been united with Christ in his death. I am dead to sin. And his spirit is in me now so that I can walk in newness of life. And that means that image does not have control over me. So I don't have to linger there and I don't have to click there. I can move on because the spirit of Christ is now in charge. That's the he's he's the Lord. I have this new life. And if I fail, I can find forgiveness and get a restart. So we have this wonderful union with Christ. That's the the first thing we want to highlight. The second thing we want to highlight is this. Our baptism brings into view for us our cleansing. It is water. It is a washing. I love in Acts 22, again, to go to the Apostle Paul. Here he's telling his own testimony. He's telling his story. He's telling how Jesus Christ came and revealed himself to him and saved him. And as he's on his way to Damascus, and there's this light, and Jesus reveals himself, and he falls down, and then he's blinded for a couple days. And Jesus sends this guy named Ananias to go talk to Paul. And here's what Paul recounts Ananias said to him in Acts twenty two sixteen, 16. Ananias says, and now, Paul, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know that your baptism brings into view the reality that when you come to faith in Christ, he washes away your sins? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As Paul is telling his story of repenting and turning from being a persecutor of Jesus and his church to becoming this apostle to the Gentiles who will suffer so greatly for Christ... He's he's describing how his newfound faith will result in his sins being washed away. He knew that he was responsible for blasphemy. He knew that he'd participated in persecuting Christ and even in murder. And his baptism pictures this washing away of sins. And again, this is what God's been promising all along. The prophet Ezekiel, back in chapter 36 of his, his book, promises a a new work that God's going to do when God will clean you from all uncleanness and give you a new heart and put his Holy Spirit in you. And the waters of baptism bring that into view as well. And so this place is not only a grave, it's a ceremonial washing. Hear that. Oh, brothers and sisters, can you hear that? God washes us where soap can't reach. He washes us on the inside. Our consciences are cleansed. Our hearts are made new. The Holy Spirit seals us, assuring us that we belong to him and that he wants to be in a covenant relationship with us and that he will keep us safe until we're home with Christ forever. And oh, what a difference this can make, can't it? Friday night I was at the Banquet for Sanctity of Life Ministries. And the speaker began to share his own story. He said when he and his then fiance, when his his wife and then, then fiance were engaged, she got pregnant and they went and got an abortion. And for 17 years, they never talked about it and nobody knew about it. They were Christians. They were leaders in their church and they had this secret. And, you know, by the grace of God, 17 years later, they were able to open that up and get some help. And God fulfilled what he promises to do here. He washed that sin away. And if you're here this morning and you've got a secret, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ and there's a guilty, dark place of your life that no one knows about, God knows. And your baptism is intended to show you that God is about washing and cleansing. And I tell you that as someone who, as a young man, sleeping with my girlfriend, we thought she'd become pregnant. And she got a pregnancy test. And if she'd been positive, we would have gotten an abortion, and I would have been responsible for that. Thankfully, she wasn't. But I know that could have been me. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've had an abortion or been responsible for one. Or maybe there's something else. I am here to proclaim to you today that through Jesus Christ, your sins can be, have been, and will be washed away. And you can live in the good of that forever. And your great God wants to bring you into fellowship into cleansing and experiencing what Christ has already done for you. And if you need somebody to talk to you, I want to encourage you to reach out to a trusted friend, reach out to a a leader in our church, reach out to God. There is cleansing available. What can wash away our sins? There's no sin the blood of Jesus can't wash away. Union with Christ and cleansing. Finally, who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? If you read your New Testament, you find that people believe and get baptized often on the same day. You wonder, well, shouldn't we do the same? Like, just do what they were doing then. If we stop and think about it, people in the New Testament often were people who knew the Scriptures well, as, for example, on the day of Pentecost. They understood much about God and much about God's kingdom. Maybe we're even anticipating a Messiah. And the reality is anybody that you read about in the New Testament who comes to faith, they're going to pay a steep price for following Jesus because it was not accepted in the Roman Empire and increasingly even within Jewish circles. It was not accepted to be a follower of Christ. The Messiah that they came to follow was so unpopular, he'd been crucified. And that was the path They knew they were signing up for. But decades rolled by, centuries rolled by, the gospel began to spread to new places. Christianity became more accepted. Christians had children who were growing up hearing the gospel in church, just like is happening here today. And so church leaders began to recognize the need to make sure that people really knew what was going on when they got baptized. They were really ready. And so new converts were typically Catechized is the word that they used. And often they were discipled for months before their baptisms. Typically they would learn the Apostles' Creed. They would be fasting and praying and in in discipleship relationships. And so we want to both read our Bibles but benefit from the wisdom of of, uh, the Holy Spirit working in the church as well. And so on the one hand, we want to encourage people who call Jesus as Lord to follow him into the waters of baptism. On the other hand, we want to make sure the people who are baptized understand the gospel and have truly repented and counted the cost of discipleship. So who should be baptized? Well, here's the phrase that we've just found helpful. This isn't from the Bible. It's just prudential wisdom, but we found it helpful. People who should be baptized are are those who can make a believable profession of faith. Those who can make a believable profession of faith. Now, immediately, that excludes one particular group, and that is infants. Infants obviously can't make a believable profession of faith. They're not making any kind of believable profession of anything. Um, and so we don't find evidence for new Test- in the New Testament for infant baptism. And again, the New Testament pattern is faith followed by the sign, repent and believe and be baptized. And we don't find exceptions for that. And so... We are baptistic in that way. We believe that baptism is your faith going public to the world and to the church in following Christ into the waters of baptism. So what makes a profession believable? What is a believable profession of faith? Well, just, just a few things. Some For someone to be baptized, they should be able to explain the gospel, go to Scripture and explain what actually is this good news person should be able to give some evidence of repentance from sin and faith in Christ because conversion is about turning away from going our own way, repenting, that's turning around, and believing in Christ, following him. So there's a new way of living, a new direction for life, and that person should be able to demonstrate in some way, it's going to be different for each person, but a desire to turn away from the world and the things of this world and live life on God's terms. So that person should give some evidence or some demonstration that they want to live under the authority of God's word and among God's people in his church. Now, all of us who are Christians now were once on the other side of that. And if you're on the other side of that, if you haven't repented and believed and been baptized, I want to proclaim to you the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners so that anyone who will come to him could be saved from their sins and receive the gift of washing, cleansing, union with Christ, and eternal life that begins now and carries on through our death into an endless life with Christ in a deathless body. And if you haven't come to that place, I'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe there's a friend that brought you here today that you'd want to talk more about that with. We have a class that we'd love to direct you to to help you understand more about how that works. So meet up with an elder, with a leader of the church, with someone that that you know. We'd love to help you in your journey. And if you're a professing Christian, maybe you've been professing Christian for a while, but you haven't been baptized, I just want to ask today, Why not? Why not? It's Christ's command to you. It signifies to the world and to yourself that you've died and been raised with Christ. And baptism is also a step into coming into fellowship with God's people in a local church. So again, just want to encourage you. We'd love to chat with you. Any of the church leaders here would love to chat with you about that. A question that often comes up in these conversations, well, what about children growing up in church? Parents and kids, you may have questions about this. When should a child be baptized? Is there a minimum age? How can parents discern the readiness of a child for baptism? Is it okay for a child to have the Lord's Supper if they haven't been baptized? What's the role of the church leaders in, in all these things? These are really important questions there's a level of detail that I can't get to in a sermon like this to answer all those questions because some of these things need to be worked out in relationships and in conversations. So I want to I encourage you, parents and, and kids, first to that Frequently Asked Questions document. I think you'll find that helpful. I want to encourage you, maybe read that and read it together. I want to encourage you to talk with a... Uh, an elder with a, with a church leader, with a youth group leader, with Christo, uh, with one of the small group leaders. I want to encourage you parents that in May there will be a 515 partnering with parents meeting to talk about these things. And I want to just take a moment and talk to the teens here and the young people here. If you're here this morning and you have a growing heart to follow Jesus, thank you for that. We are so excited for you. We want to encourage you. Keep pressing into Christ. Keep calling out to him. Keep following him. We want to cheer you on and we want to encourage you in the journey. We want to encourage you to be talking about this with your parents. And again, we want to encourage you to be talking about this with a small group leader, with a church leader. We are for you. And we're excited for what God's doing in your heart. And we want to help you in that journey. So in conclusion... Church, do you know that your baptism, it still matters in your daily life. Let your baptism remind you that you've been united with Christ in his death and now you're dead to sin. Sin's ruling power is broken over you. It points you to your union with Christ and the newness of life that you have with him. You're not under that water anymore. You're out, raised to new life, and he's your Lord and King. Let this sacrament be a seal that points you to what Christ has done for you. And and let it be an assurance to you that Christ welcomes you, receives you, and has brought you into an eternal covenant never to be broken.